Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. She's missing, we're looking for her, that kind of thing. And then, I mean, a week later is when it all just blew wide open with the idiots running out of gas in their airplane and having to emergency land on a dirt road in South Georgia. Small towns, a lot of times don't have small secrets. You know, there's big secrets in small towns. Don't overlook a sleepy little town. There could be a devil waiting there, you know? Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. Lex, thank you for holding down the fort last week alone, solo. Honestly, it was not as fun recording alone. It's like very hard to stay focused. (laughs) I was like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to sit here and do this by myself with like no TV on? I know. Like nothing, no one engaged with but myself. Your ADD just starts going crazy. You're like, what else can I be doing in the middle of the sentence? Seriously, it took a lot of focus, but um, I'm just glad you're back. I know. I'm glad I'm back too. We're back. We're in action. Starting off the year, ready to go. Yep. And we're going to just get right into it, huh? Yeah, let's start. Well, before before we get right in, I just wanted to remind everybody about our lovely Patreon because we haven't given it a shout out in a second. If you're looking for more true crime content from your favorite two ladies, please join us over at our Patreon. We have one episode every single week, full length true crime goodness. And as you know, if you listen to Killing Time for last week and the next couple weeks, we're going to be dropping those Patreons in the feed on Thursday in lieu of Killing Time while we revamp. So it's your chance to get a little taste of what we're doing over there to decide if you, you know, you can try it before you buy it. Absolutely. They are like some of our favorite episodes over the past year and a half since we've had Patreon. So they're not like the newest ones that are coming out, but we just want to give you a little taste because we'd love you to join us over at the Underground. Definitely. All right. So I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Everyone knows that news travels fast in small towns. 
But sometimes we forget what that old adage implies. Because the news doesn't travel fast in small towns all on its own. News travels fast because people in small towns talk to each other. They engage with each other, interact with each other. Small towns are hubs of communication. That's the advantage of having only two gas stations and one grocery store and little else. You start up conversations with the people around you because you're seeing those same exact people all the time. You build human connections. You create relationships with individuals and families and communities. And those relationships, they're meaningful. Small town folk are bonded by common experiences that city dwellers just don't have. But the reason that small towns forge such strong relationships is the same reason that it feels like a betrayal when something goes astray. When one person harms another, it doesn't feel like an isolated incident. It doesn't feel like an anomaly. Rather, it impacts the entire community, shakes it, and tears it down. One relationship isn't the only thing that's broken. An entire network fractures. It makes everyone trust each other just a little less. And it makes us wonder about people we've known for years. Who else among us is not who they appear to be? Today's case begins on December 13th of 1990. Only two days before, the Interstate 75 fog disaster took place in Tennessee. This tragic event was a massive multi-car collision that occurred when dense fog rapidly appeared on the I-75 for about 20 minutes starting at 9.10 in the morning. In total, 99 vehicles were involved in this crash. 42 people were injured and 12 died. One survivor told the Chattanooga Times, it was like somebody threw a blanket across your windshield. That had to be so freaking terrifying. So scary. My God. So in music, Because I Love You, the Postman song by Stevie B topped the charts while Bette Midler's From a Distance followed closely behind. And I actually think this is kind of funny thinking about music because it's like 1990. Yeah. Obviously, the 90s music has not even made happened. its way in yet. So it's like so Bette Midler is still... It's Bette Midler. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Which is so random. But soon, the best decade of music, in my opinion, was coming. Right. And as for movies, the iconic Christmas classic... That is a tongue twister. Home Alone, we've all seen it, starring Macaulay Culkin, was taking the box office by storm. After only a month in theaters, the film made a record-breaking $88.7 million. I don't even know what that is with inflation, but that's insane. No, seriously. And the setting for today's case is Powder Springs, Georgia, and it's located on the western side of the Atlanta metropolitan area in Cobb County. Originally, the Powder Springs land belonged to the Cherokee Indian Nation, But after the Indian Removal Act of 1830, settlers took their place. For centuries, the area has been well known for its seven springs, and these springs produce sediment that is dry and nearly black, just like gunpowder. So over the years, people would call the city different names, referencing these springs and their gunpowder-like sediment. The Springs, Springville, and Gunpowder Springs— But today, Powder Springs is a small, tree-filled town that's home to about 17,000 people. But during the time of today's case in 1990, the population was only 7,000. Our first degree for today's case is named Michelle, and Michelle is from Dallas, Georgia, which is only 11 miles away from Powder Springs. There's even a road between the two towns named Powder Springs Dallas Road, which is a very effective road name. And just like Powder Springs, Dallas is also a very small town. Yeah. As of 2024, about 14,000 people lived in Dallas. But back in 1990, there was only 3,000 people, which is small. Heck, there are high schools with a higher population than that. But needless to say, Dallas, Georgia was an extremely tight-knit community. We are about 35 miles west of Atlanta. So we're 
kind of on the outskirts of a bedroom community type situation. Just very small. Back then, it was extremely small. Everyone knew everyone, literally, or you knew the family. And I was an Army brat and actually ended up back in Dallas because my parents were from there. When Michelle was in her late teens, she was working her first real job at a local bank. And by real job, we mean that Michelle wasn't like babysitting or mowing lawns for pocket cash anymore. Now she was filing her W-2 form, clocking in and clocking out. She was getting an actual bona fide paycheck. And for her, I'm sure that was really exciting. This is, you know, circa 1990. So I was 19. It was really my first big girl job. Again, it was Dallas. So we knew everybody. You know, I never had to ask for ID of any of my customers because I knew them. I would work at the different branches that we had. We had several branches at that time. Because I was young and everything, they would put me in a grocery store branch because I could work the later hours. Michelle liked working at the bank. She was smart and capable. So handling her bank job duties felt like a fun time rather than a hard one. Plus, Michelle's customers, whom she knew from around town, were great. Well, most of them were great anyway. Everyone except for Dr. Jack Ray Wallace. He was 64 years old, a chiropractor from Powder Springs, and a bit of an odd duck. Dr. Wallace, I use that term (laughs) very sparingly, he was a customer of our bank. And I didn't always work at the branch where he came to. But one time I was there and he walked up and I was like, why isn't anybody waiting on him? You know, because I had a customer and I ended up waiting on him. And, you know, it being a small town, the minute he left, I got the scoop. I was like, who is this man? You know, because he was actually from the next town over, which was Powder Springs. So I wasn't that familiar with him other than just being a customer at the bank. And they were like, we do not wait on him. We do not like him. He is a creeper. So I was like, oh, my God. I mean, as far as dealing with him from a business transaction standpoint, I mean, it was just another customer. But just the vibe you got off him was just creepy. You know, it really says something that all of the other bank tellers who knew Dr. Wallace were like, do not talk to that guy. Don't let Michelle talk to that guy. He is a creeper. And this isn't him just giving these girls the heebie-jeebies just once or twice. This is a pattern of behavior. Michelle said that the other tellers thought that Dr. Wallace stared a lot at the female employees. And it's one of those things that once you notice it, you can't really unnotice it. You know, I was trying to think of how a word to describe him. He has the flat, dark eyes. And I think that's what his creep factor was, the eye, the creepiness. You know, there's just nothing there. He would just stare at you, kind of, like, I don't know, it was just weird. And it stayed with me, you know, all this time. I still remember that. Bad vibes all around. But what are you going to do? Old men creepily staring at women is just kind of part of the female experience. It shouldn't be, obviously, but it is, and we all deal with it. So Michelle kept working at this bank, and Dr. Wallace kept coming in with his big, creepy eyes. And everyone just laughed off his weird staring and moved on. 
Until one day, Dr. Wallace came into the bank with a gorgeous woman on his arm, and that woman was named Kimberly K. Jones. She went by Kim, she was in her mid-20s, and she was just known for being an all-around sweetheart. And even though our first-degree Michelle hadn't formally met Kim, Michelle knew of Kim and her family, the Joneses. In fact, one of Michelle's closest friends was Kim's cousin, and her name was Luvi. And Luvi sometimes talked to Michelle about her older cousin, Kim. Kim was about five years older than I am. Luvi's pretty cousin is kind of how she was known. And she was just very outgoing, very sweet-natured. And I saw a story that someone shared when the anniversary came up where someone said, hey, we were out partying, drinking too much, and she came up and took care of me and really didn't know me. You know, that's the kind of person she was. Okay, so I'm sure you're wondering... Why was creepy, no-good Dr. Wallace walking into the bank with a bombshell heart of gold, Kim Jones? Well, that's because they were husband and wife. And Kim Jones had actually become Mrs. Kim Wallace. I was very surprised that Kim had married him. Very surprised. He was older and had a mustache and gray hair. And of course, me being 19, he was really old. (laughs) And then when I met his wife, When I saw that it was Kim, I was like, oh, my God, why did she marry him? You know, that was the big question. She had everything going for her. Apparently, she had worked for him in the chiropractic office, and they met, and she fell in love with them, with him and married him. So I can totally see why Michelle thought that Dr. Wallace and Kim's relationship was a bit disconcerting. But, you know, to each their own. Everybody's living their own lives. Whatever. Michelle shrugged off the situation and just kept plugging along at work. And Dr. Wallace continued to drop by the bank to handle his business accounts there. Sometimes Kim herself would deposit Dr. Wallace's checks with Michelle. Then one day Michelle heard some really unsettling news. Kim had just seemingly vanished into thin air. She'd gone missing. And no one had any idea where she could be. Or at least they didn't. Until a big, plain-sized clue landed right in the authorities' laps. She's missing. We're looking for her, that kind of thing. And then, I mean, a week later is when it all just blew wide open with the idiots running out of gas in their airplane and having to emergency land on a dirt road in South Georgia. Small towns, a lot of times, don't have small secrets. You know, there's big secrets in small towns. Don't overlook a sleepy little town. There could be a devil waiting there, you know. Where was Kim Wallace? What had happened to her? Was she hurt? Who was on that airplane? Speaking of airplanes, how in the world was one related to this specific missing person case? To answer all those questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Kimberly K. Jones was born on December 15th of 1962 to her mother, Martha Sue, and her father, Maxie. Very few details about Kim's personal life were published in the news. But as we mentioned before, we do know that Kim spent most of her life near Dallas, Georgia, in Paulding County. And on the Paulding County website's discussion forums, many people remembered Kim fondly. They recalled that Kim was a charming woman who just loved life. She was clever, funny, and a talented storyteller. And she was known for going out of her way to help others. One Paulding County local explained that Kim had held her head while they were sick after a night of rough drinking. And another said that Kim jumped into a pool that was green with algae to save a drowning three-year-old child. 
According to the Atlanta Journal, when Kim was 19, she worked as a bank teller in Hiram, Georgia. Hiram is another small town in this area, and that's where Kim met 51-year-old Dr. Wallace. In a scenario strangely familiar to our first-degree Michelle situation, Dr. Wallace was a customer at Kim's bank when he began chatting her up. So it feels like Dr. Wallace had a thing for young female bank tellers. But luckily for Dr. Wallace, Kim returned his affection and they began a relationship. And after a while, Kim moved in with Dr. Wallace. And three years later, 22-year-old Kim married 54-year-old Dr. Wallace at the Orange Hill Baptist Church. And at first, it seemed like Kim and Dr. Wallace made a surprisingly strong couple. Right. And of course, some people raise an eyebrow at how much younger she was than him. They wondered if Kim loved Dr. Wallace or if she loved his financial stability. After all, Dr. Wallace's net worth was somewhere around $2 million. You account for inflation. That's about $4.7 million today. And Dr. Wallace was known for spending a lot of money on Kim. According to those who knew Dr. Wallace, he bought her diamonds and fur coats. And Dr. Wallace's friend and business partner, Carl Long, told the Atlanta Journal, anything Kim wanted, she got. But many others thought that this idea that Kim was a gold digger was bullshit. First and foremost, Dr. Wallace wasn't spending his money just on Kim. He liked buying really nice luxury things for himself as well. Dr. Wallace had cars, motorcycles, and a timeshare condo in Florida. He even lived on a ranch that was big enough to have its own name. It was called Bit of Heaven. Clearly, Kim wasn't running this man into the ground financially, at least not alone. Right. It was quite the opposite, actually. Kim was a really hard worker. And according to Kim's family's interviews with the Atlanta Journal, she began working at the age of 16. And while Kim and Dr. Wallace were together, Kim did the bookkeeping for his chiropractic clinic in Powder Springs. That's why, as our first degree Michelle said, Kim would drop off checks at the bank on behalf of her husband, Dr. Wallace. And Kim wasn't interested in a free ride, and she wasn't the problem in the relationship, not by a long shot. As it turns out, Dr. Wallace was the problem. According to Kim's family, Dr. Wallace was abusive, controlling, and manipulative. Per the Atlanta Journal, Kim's father said, I'd seen bruises all over Kim's face, neck, and arms. And it's Kim's mother, who was no longer in a relationship with Kim's father, supported these allegations of abuse, too. So Martha Sue Porter told the Atlanta Constitution, I would see Kim with bruised eyes, bruised face, and arms and ask why she didn't leave him. And she would say, Mom, you've got to understand, I love him more than anything. So let's learn a little bit more about Dr. Wallace. His full name was Jack Ray Wallace, and he was born in 1929. He had at least one brother, and it's likely that they grew up together near Mableton, Georgia. People who knew Dr. Wallace considered him a pillar of the community and a self-made man, and they referred to him as quiet and solid. One fellow chiropractor told the Atlanta Journal, Dr. Wallace has given his life and devotion to his patients, and other people also gave Dr. Wallace similarly glowing reviews. But we all know that this isn't uncommon for abusers. Like, they're charming, and they charm the pants off some people and abuse others. They present nice, and they present to have, like, a friendly facade. Absolutely. And it's only those closest to them that really know their true behaviors. It's really like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. Or maybe Dr. Wallace and Mr. Jack in this case. Just as our first degree Michelle had always suspected. He had a thriving chiropractic practice. He must have been able to turn on the charm at some point, and people kept coming back to him. So, you know, he was kind of like a devil in disguise, so to speak. Only we all picked up on it because, <laughs> you know, he wasn't trying to charm us. Kim's relatives were not the first to accuse Dr. Wallace of abuse. 
In fact, before Dr. Wallace tied the knot with Kim, he'd been married twice. His first wife was Fela Ann White. They married around 1951 when Dr. Wallace was about 22, and they had four sons together. But after 17 years of marriage, Dr. Wallace and Fela divorced in 1968. And according to the Atlanta Journal, during their split, Dr. Wallace accused Fela of cheating on him with another man, actually with multiple men. And Fela accused Dr. Wallace of physically abusing her. She claimed that he would beat her with his hands, belts, and other objects. And she said that Dr. Wallace seriously injured her on several occasions. Fela also indicated that Dr. Wallace beat at least two of his four sons. By the end of their divorce proceedings, it was clear that the court believed Fela's claims were more valid than Dr. Wallace's because she won custody of all four of their sons. And she was awarded her and Dr. Wallace's furniture and cars. Plus, she won ownership of Dr. Wallace's first chiropractic clinic in Austell, Georgia. And in addition to all of that, Dr. Wallace was supposed to pay Fela child support. But Dr. Wallace didn't do that, at least not for three years until the court came after him. Around the 1970s, Dr. Wallace was married and divorced again. And that brings us to his third wife, our very own Kimberly K. Jones. They didn't end up having any children together. And by April of 1990, about five years of their marriage, things were falling apart. Right. And according to Kim's family, Dr. Wallace kicked Kim out of their house. That happened after a fight where Kim accused him of cheating on her. You see, a married woman who we'll call Sadie, who also worked at Dr. Wallace's clinic, had recently given birth. And Kim was certain that this baby was the child of Dr. Wallace's, not Sadie's husband. And Kim was probably right, because blood tests proved that Sadie's husband was not the father of Sadie's child. And somebody, obviously, had to be that wasn't him. And to add insult to injury, the Atlanta Constitution indicated that Sadie was Kim's close friend. And some reports even said that they were best friends. And as if there weren't enough wrinkles here already, Sadie decided to name the baby after none other than Kim herself. What the hell? So dark. Bizarre. As a result of Dr. Wallace probably getting Kim's good friend Sadie pregnant, Kim decided it was time to file for divorce, I'll say. So she quit working for Dr. Wallace at the chiropractic clinic and she lawyered up. She had filed for divorce and had quit working there. And he still came in and did his deposits. And we were just like, oh. For months and months and months, Kim and Dr. Wallace's nasty divorce battle raged on. During this time, the court ordered Dr. Wallace to send Kim monthly alimony payments of about $1,700. And Dr. Wallace also had to give Kim two of his vehicles. So now Dr. Wallace was beginning to get really worried. He'd done this divorce thing twice before so he could see the writing on the wall. Kim had a strong case to claim half of his assets. And according to Kim's father, Dr. Wallace even spoke to him about how he would, quote, never again allow his possessions to be taken from him in a divorce action. Kind of bold to tell that to the father of your soon-to-be ex-wife. Insane. Yeah, especially when there was already such bad blood between Kim's father and Dr. Wallace because of the bruises on his daughter he always saw. In fact, on November 29th of 1990, Dr. Wallace's divorce lawyer contacted Kim. And that lawyer requested that Kim stop bringing her father along when she picked up her alimony checks from Dr. Wallace. So I'd be like, that's a no. Like, she's Mm -hmm. obviously bringing her dad for a reason. Right. So two weeks later, on Thursday, December 13th of 1990, Kim drove to Dr. Wallace's home in Powder Springs. She intended to grab her Christmas ornaments and decorations for the holiday season. Kim went there alone, as was requested by that divorce lawyer. And 27-year-old Kimberly K. Jones Wallace was never seen again.
Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. After Kim disappeared on the evening of December 13th, everyone from Dallas to Powder Springs to Atlanta was on high alert. Kim's family, the Joneses, were prominent figures with friends and influence, and they were not going to rest until they found Kim. It was newsworthy. It was on the uh, Atlanta news because her family is very well known in the community and went to the press. We need our daughter back. She was missing and foul play was suspected. And of course, he said he didn't see her. It was just tragic. As soon as our first-degree Michelle had heard the news, she immediately suspected Dr. Wallace had something to do with it. After all, Kim had been going to his house. So Dr. Wallace knew exactly where she would be and when she would be there. 
I immediately said, oh, he did it. <laughs> Which you're not supposed to say. You know, you're not supposed to be that judgmental or snap to a judgment like that. But if you knew this man, you knew he was capable of something like that. I mean, that's just the vibe he gave off. I don't even know how he had any patience, but apparently he had a lot. His office was very busy. And I think a lot of that had to do with Kim being there as well, because she was just such a people person and she greeted the patients and all that. So I think a lot of that, they stayed to see her. But yeah, as soon as I found out, it's like, he did it. There's no doubt. He did it. He had something to do with it. I'm sure others were in the same boat as Michelle, thinking that Dr. Wallace had had a hand in his estranged wife's disappearance. No one suspected that there were more players involved, or that by the end of all of this, four men would be in police custody, not until an airplane mysteriously landed nearly 300 miles to the south and exposed the truth once and for all. At 1.50 a.m. on Friday, December 14th of 1990, an officer for the Ware Correctional Institute named Terrell Tootin was on perimeter patrol. He watched a Cessna 172 airplane fly very low to the ground over the nearby Waycross Ware County Airport. The plane circled and then landed on the airport's main runway, which was strange for several reasons. One, hardly anybody used this airstrip during the day, and two, nobody used it at night. And three, the plane's pilot had not activated the radio-controlled runway lights. Right away, Terrell knew something was up. This kind of behavior spelled shady with a capital S. But Terrell had no idea this was related to Kim or Dr. Wallace. Actually, Terrell figured this was an illegal drug-running operation, which makes sense. Especially since the plane taxied to a wooded area off the runway. It was literally as far away from the airport facilities as it could possibly get. Terrell radioed the authorities and explained what was going on, and seven minutes later, two officers arrived. As the two men from the Ware County Sheriff's Office approached the plane, the plane's engine restarted and the propellers began to turn. They were trying to take off, and it was then that the officials activated their emergency lights. Seeing that the jig was up, two men got out of the plane, one of whom was 43-year-old Frederick Stephen Spees. He was a construction worker and self-employed contractor, and the other was 53-year-old Michael Glean. Michael Anthony Glean was born in 1937, and he, like most others in today's case, spent most of his years in Georgia. Throughout the course of Michael's life, he married, had at least two kids, and divorced. And at some point, he went to law school and became a lawyer, more specifically, a divorce attorney. In 1965, 28-year-old Michael met 36-year-old Dr. Jack Wallace, and Michael was suffering from back pain, so he'd gone to Dr. Wallace for treatment. But Michael's back pain didn't go away. It was a chronic issue. So Michael kept returning to Dr. Wallace's chiropractic clinic for more medical support. Over time, the two men got to know each other and became friends. And in exchange for helping alleviate his back pain, Michael would do Dr. Wallace's legal work. After years of this quid pro quo relationship, two things happened. First, when Dr. Wallace was divorcing Kim in 1990, he knew just the lawyer to call. His dear old friend of 25 years, Michael Glean. And second, according to Michael's own testimony, Michael became addicted to painkillers. They'd started as a strategy for treating his bad back, and then they became a real problem. Before Michael's drug addiction, his friends and family reported that he was a loving father, a good friend, and religious. He was funny and business-oriented. He'd even owned an Irish pub for a while. It was called the Blarney Stone, and it was in the original Atlanta underground. 
Michael was super popular among his customers and well-known for his hilarious stories. But after the drugs, well, Michael just wasn't the same guy anymore. His daughter told the Atlanta Constitution. He became forgetful and agitated. His whole personality changed. At no point has anybody ever blamed Dr. Wallace for Michael's painkiller addiction. And we're not trying to make that allegation here at all. As far as we can tell you, Dr. Wallace was treating Michael's back pain correctly. But some people are just more prone to addiction than others. And Michael did have a previous history of substance abuse. In the 1980s, Michael moved to Florida for a while. And while he was there, he was arrested twice for DUIs and shoplifting. And around that same time while living in Florida, Michael happened to make another new friend. This friend was Frederick Stephen Spees. He was Michael's neighbor in Middleburg, Florida. And now for some unknown reason, Frederick was with Michael in this airplane. On December 14th of 1990 in Weir County, Georgia, landing suspiciously without lights on an airstrip at nearly two in the morning. So seeing the authorities with their flashing lights, Michael and Frederick had gotten out of their plane. Michael tried to remain calm as he walked towards the two officers, but the officers could tell that he was obviously extremely nervous. He was sweating profusely and talking nonstop. Michael took out his pilot license and his bar card, which showed that he was a lawyer. But Michael didn't have any other photographic ID on him, like a driver's license, passport, anything like that. At first, Michael tried to tell the authorities that he and Frederick were delivering Christmas presents to his legal clients. Okay. Which is probably like the worst lie I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. Officers obviously didn't buy it. So the cops brought a drug dog to the scene, and the dog alerted to drugs on the side of the small plane, exactly where the pilot's door was mysteriously missing. The officers quickly obtained a search warrant for the aircraft, and they could see that not only had somebody removed the pilot door, but they'd also removed the front passenger seat. And this is presumably to make room for a very large toolbox. This toolbox was four feet long, plastic, and black, like the kinds you might see in a truck bed against the back window. But this toolbox had been modified so that its ends had hinged doors. And when the officers opened the toolbox, what they found was truly astonishing. It was the body of 27-year-old Kim Wallace. She was naked and had a plastic bag tied over her head, and she was covered in petroleum jelly. As the officers continued to search, they discovered more and more incriminating evidence. Inside the plane, there were special goggles that would allow a pilot to fly without a door. I didn't even know there were goggles for that. That's such a random thing. Fascinating. And in Michael's pocket, they found Kim's watch. There was also an aerial map of the Okefenokee Swamp. And on this aerial map, somebody had marked a location right in the middle of said swamp. This swamp is massive, and it's a shallow wetland that stretches from Georgia to Florida. It covers about 684 square miles, which is more than half the size of Rhode Island. This is a massive swamp. Oh, yeah. It's the kind of place that would be really easy to get lost in. It has somewhere between 10,000 and 13,000 alligators. If you wanted to hide remains, like this swamp would be the strategic place to do it. And even before the authorities completely understood the nuances of what was happening, it did not take them long to figure out what the plan was. Somebody, presumably Michael and this other guy, Frederick, had slathered this toolbox in petroleum jelly, and they stuffed Kim's body inside of it. Then they removed the front passenger seat of the small airplane so the toolbox holding Kim's body would fit inside. And they did all of this so that they could fly over the swamp and drop Kim into the swamp from high up in the air. Just push her out of the toolbox from the sky. And the petroleum jelly was part of this plan, right? They wanted to make this seamless so she'd be slippery, which is just like... This is all unthinkable. 
it was on the news. The guy made an emergency landing, and of course they called the police because you know it's South Georgia. I mean, it could be drug running. It was rampant back then. So of course the police were called, and they apparently searched the plane. They were looking for something nefarious. They knew those guys weren't up to any good, and they found the toolbox that her body was in. Because the plan was to drop her body off in the Okefenokee Swamp, which is South Georgia's huge swamp that we have. It's thousands of acres. That was the idea. We're going to push her out of the plane over the swamp. Nobody will ever find her. She'll just be missing. That was the plan. But there was one small kink in this plan. Michael and Frederick needed to remove this plane's door. And for whatever reason, they hadn't done that before their initial takeoff, so that's why they landed on this runway in Ware County. This is so they could remove the door, get in the air again, and follow through with the original plan. The authorities found the door about 50 yards from where the plane was stopped. To no one's surprise, Michael and Frederick had a different story. Michael claimed they had no clue there was a body in this toolbox. It was, according to him, supposed to be filled with Christmas gifts for Michael's clients. And they'd had to make an emergency landing because the plane's radio microphone was having problems. That's why they hadn't turned on the runway lights on the airstrip. And they would have needed to use the radio microphone to do that, which explains it. And as far as the missing plane door goes, they said that they'd lost it when they landed on the runway. But, you know, you got to imagine that a door looks a little bit different when it's ripped off the side of an aircraft during a rocky landing versus when it would be carefully removed with the tools and placed out of sight. So according to law enforcement, Michael said, I am not a murderer. I am a Christian, which is a wild thing to say. But okay, Michael. Michael. But at this point, the police knew that Michael and Frederick were obviously lying about something. And they arrested both of them on the spot. And while sitting in the back of a patrol car, Michael kept saying over and over again, my friends have set me up. And according to law enforcement, Michael cut his own wrists in what appeared to be an attempt to die by suicide. Michael was taken to a hospital by ambulance and made a full recovery. Right away, detectives obtained a search warrant for Michael's house and his car. And this is where they discovered that Michael had even more aerial charts and maps outlining the details of that swamp. And that Michael had spent Wednesday, December 12th, the day before Kim disappeared, trying to rent three airplanes from various Georgia airports. One airport was located in Atlanta, another in Athens, and a third was in Winder. When he tried to rent these planes, he'd used various aliases, and he lied about what he did. At one point, he said he worked for the University of Georgia, and he also made some odd requests when trying to rent these planes. He wanted the passenger seat removed to accommodate a large package. The Peachtree Deck Lab Airport in Atlanta immediately said no. Obviously, it seems sketchy. They said that you absolutely cannot rent our airplane with the seat removed. The Athens airport said, sure, go ahead, and then called police. The officers surveilled that Athens plane, waiting for so-called Dr. Birdman to arrive, but he never did, and instead Michael went to that Winder airport, which was the only one that had accepted this strange rental request. The police also investigated Michael's phone records, and they saw that on the morning of Thursday, December 13th, the day Kim vanished, Michael had called the park where the swamp is. Then he called Dr. Wallace's health clinic, Then he called Dr. Wallace's house. Then he called Dr. Wallace's health clinic again. And in between those phone calls, Michael had continued to contact numerous airports. So this is seeming kind of like frenzied phone activity, like trying to problem solve, perhaps. 
So the day after Michael and Frederick were arrested, Dr. Wallace voluntarily went into the local police station to be interviewed. When a police detective informed Dr. Wallace that his estranged wife's body was found in a toolbox on a plane that was piloted by his divorce attorney, Dr. Wallace responded, I don't know anything about it. He denied it, denied everything. It's just crazy. And he, you know, denied it the whole time. (laughs) So who else would do that to her? You know, come on, dude. She wanted a big settlement because he was wealthy or appeared to be wealthy, and he wasn't going to part with his wealth. So that's why he did it. Just good old greed. Detectives spoke with Dr. Wallace for nine hours, during which Dr. Wallace continued to deny any involvement in Kim's murder. However, Dr. Wallace did slip up once. After the investigators explained how Kim's body was discovered, Dr. Wallace said, I did not want it to be like that. Dr. Wallace consented to the police searching his house, and there the authorities found a jar of petroleum jelly. When a forensic chemist tested the jar, they discovered black particles in it. These black particles matched the same morphology, size, shape, and general textures as the particles taken from the toolbox. However, the forensic chemist couldn't say that these particles were a match with 100% certainty. In Dr. Wallace's home, investigators also found tape, rope, and plastic bags. And these items were similar to the tape, rope, and plastic bag found on Kim's body. But once again, a 100% match could not be established. Still, on Thursday, December 20th, 62-year-old Dr. Jack Ray Wallace was charged with Kim's murder. He turned himself into the Cobb Police Headquarters at 3.30 p.m. And the Atlanta Journal reported that as Dr. Wallace was being relocated, he was wearing handcuffs. He said, I'm innocent. I knew nothing about it. While we're not entirely sure what led the police to feel confident enough to charge and arrest Dr. Wallace, it may have had something to do with this intriguing piece of evidence. Detectives had found Dr. Wallace's Jeep parked at Michael Glean's house, and inside Dr. Wallace's Jeep glove compartment was a letter, and that letter had directions to a nearby airport. According to that medical examiner, there was a two-inch bruise on Kim's neck muscles near her thyroid cartilage, and that led them to conclude that she'd been strangled. Additionally, Kim's blood analysis revealed that she had a near-lethal dose of Valium and phenobarbital in her system. But there were no traces of those drugs in her stomach, which means someone had injected her. By the time Kim was being murdered, medical experts believed that she would have been nearly comatose due to the drugs. So as the state prosecutors built their cases against Dr. Jack Wallace, Michael Glean, and Frederick Spees, they painted the following picture. On December 13th, Kim went to Dr. Wallace's house to get those Christmas ornaments. She was alone and not with her father, just as Michael, the divorce attorney, had asked her to be. And at some point, while Kim was headed to or already at Dr. Wallace's house, she was abducted, injected with drugs, and strangled. Eyewitnesses later testified that Dr. Wallace was at his cousin's house during this time, so it's likely that Dr. Wallace didn't murder Kim himself. And the person who killed Kim is technically unknown, but the authorities did publicly suspect that a man named Jeremiah Lee was hired as a hitman to eliminate Kim. Jeremiah was also arrested, charged, and tried for his alleged role in Kim's death. Ultimately, he was acquitted after a jury trial in September of 1992. And that's probably because there was very little evidence against Jeremiah. The prosecution did prove that he had taken his family to Michael Glean's farmhouse on December 12th of 1990, the day before Kim's murder. And according to Jeremiah's wife, Jeremiah and Michael left together that same day. Two days later, on December 14th, Jeremiah returned while Michael did not, which makes sense since Michael had been arrested at the airport by that time. 
And speaking of Michael, he was the first to face a jury trial. His court proceedings began on May 6th of 1992, just two years after Kim was killed. Michael's defense attorneys contended that he was actually the second victim of Dr. Wallace's elaborate setup to murder his estranged wife. According to them, Michael was easily manipulated due to his addiction to those painkillers. So he truly had no idea that Kim was stuffed into the toolbox when he piloted the airplane. But the state disagreed. They claimed that Michael was actually instrumental to this murder plot. According to prosecutors, not only had Michael rented and flown the plane they were using to get rid of Kim's body, he'd also abandoned Kim's car where it was later found at the Cumberland Mall in Atlanta. According to other witnesses, Michael had openly admitted to luring Kim to Dr. Wallace's home for the purpose of orchestrating her death. And to help demonstrate that, Kim's divorce attorney testified that Kim's final journey to Dr. Wallace's home wasn't just for Kim to pick up those Christmas ornaments. The estranged couple was also going to discuss dividing up other household belongings, which is why Michael would have known about that and been involved in that scheduled visit. You know, after all, he was Dr. Wallace's divorce attorney, and this is all part of the divorce. The state also brought out one of Michael's jailers, Wes James, as a witness, because Wes had heard Michael say... It would be a shame for me to die in jail. I'm the only one who knows all the facts, but I did not murder her. And honestly, Michael probably didn't murder Kim. He was in poor health, so he was often wearing bandages and walking with a cane. So he might not have been strong enough to overpower her. But it didn't really matter that Michael wasn't the one to physically strangle Kim. The prosecution even said as much. They were only trying to prove that Michael had contributed to Kim's murder. In closing statements, District Attorney Donnie Dixon told the jury, we're saying Michael was a party to this. We don't have to prove that he actually had his hands around Kimberly's neck. On May 17th, after three hours and 45 minutes of deliberation, the jury found 53-year-old Michael Glean guilty for his role in Kim's murder. And the next day, a jury recommended a sentence of life in prison. The sentence was a disappointment to many. The prosecution had requested the death penalty and Kim's family expressed concern that Michael could be released on parole someday. One juror told the Atlanta Constitution that they regretted not lobbying for Michael to receive the death penalty. They simply hadn't realized that life in prison meant with the possibility of parole. Still, the local authorities reassured everybody that when the time came for Michael to be considered for parole, they would support his continued incarceration. Up next was the combined trial of Dr. Wallace, Frederick Spees, and Jeremiah Lee. That happened in September of 92, and as we mentioned before, Jeremiah was acquitted. However, Dr. Wallace and Frederick Spees were not so lucky. But it wasn't for lack of trying, at least on Dr. Wallace's part. Wallace's defense team alleged that it was actually Michael Glean who masterminded Kim's death. In their eyes, Dr. Wallace had nothing to do with it. And as for Michael's motive, a woman named Linda Curley testified that she'd spoken to Kim weeks before her murder. Linda said that Kim shared that she had met Michael in a chance encounter. They were on a secluded road in Cobb County, and Kim gave Michael oral sex in exchange for a better divorce settlement. This is a wild ride, this whole thing. Wow, yeah. One of Dr. Wallace's sons from a previous marriage supported these accusations. He stated that he'd overheard Kim and Michael talking a few days before she was murdered. According to this son, Kim said if she didn't get what she wanted from the divorce, she was going to expose his drug dealings and their sexual relationship. And this was the reason Michael Glean wanted Kim dead. Seems like a big stretch. <laughs> Holy shit. So in response to this, the prosecutors pointed out that these two witnesses, Linda and Dr. Wallace's son, had much stronger relationships and ties to Dr. Wallace than they did with Kim. So therefore, their testimony could not be trusted. But Dr. Wallace's defense attorneys were not done yet. 
They also contended that Dr. Wallace had no motive at all in the world for wanting Kim dead. Yeah, even though he said to Kim's father, I'm not going to lose my property in a divorce again. Yeah. Dr. Wallace's attorney claimed that Kim had signed an airtight prenuptial agreement that protected all of Dr. Wallace's assets. His motive couldn't have been money because he wasn't going to lose anything in the divorce. But Kim's divorce attorney said that that was baloney. He'd never heard of the supposed prenup. And that was suspicious since Kim and Dr. Wallace had been in divorce proceedings for months and months by the time she was murdered. So yeah. And whether or not you signed a prenup seems like the first thing that you would bring up to your divorce lawyer. Like everything hinges on that. Right. Prosecutors openly acknowledged that they only had circumstantial evidence linking Dr. Wallace to Kim's murder. But that circumstantial evidence was very compelling. They knew Kim was at or near Dr. Wallace's home about the same time that she vanished and that she'd been abused both verbally and physically by Dr. Wallace in the past. They also highlighted how Dr. Wallace had said, I did not want it to be like that after hearing about the circumstances of Kim's death. And on Saturday, September 19th of 1992, after deliberating for more than eight hours, the jury found 63-year-old Dr. Jack Ray Wallace and 45-year-old Frederick Stephen Spees guilty for their roles in Kim's murder. They were both sentenced to life in prison, which was to be expected. The prosecution had not sought the death penalty for them. And we know that we didn't address Frederick Spees' side of the story in the trial, and frankly, it's because there's not really much information available. His involvement in the whole thing is a little bit of a mystery. He didn't have a previous criminal history or really anything at all. He'd just been Michael's Florida neighbor years and years ago. If I had to guess, Frederick was probably convicted since he was physically with Michael Glean in the airplane transporting Kim. And if Michael was guilty, well, Frederick almost certainly had to be guilty too. The only noteworthy thing about Frederick in the trial was that Dr. Wallace testified that he didn't even know him. But Dr. Wallace's phone number was on a business card found in Frederick's wallet. So clearly they had a connection. In April of 1994, Kim's parents won $17 million in a civil racketeering and wrongful death lawsuit against Dr. Wallace. At the time, Dr. Wallace's estate was worth about $1.3 million, and I hope that they got every single penny of that. Over the years, both Michael and Dr. Wallace appealed their convictions. Dr. Wallace even accused his lawyer of being inadequate because he'd visited the hotel bar during the trial. Ultimately, all of those appeals did not result in any significant change. It's widely believed that Dr. Wallace and the other men nearly got away with Kim's murder. It was sheer chance that someone had seen that plane land and called the police. Even District Attorney Donnie Dixon, who prosecuted the case, told the Atlanta Journal, in my opinion, it was a well-planned, almost perfectly executed murder. According to our first screen, Michelle, Dr. Wallace died while in prison. And while we couldn't verify that with official sources, it does seem like that was likely. The last report of Dr. Wallace that we could find was from September of 2016 when he was incarcerated at the Augusta State Medical Prison. He would have been 87 years old. As for Michael Glean, he was disbarred in the state of Georgia. Yeah, no shit. Convicted murderer. And according to the Georgia Department of Corrections, he was released from prison on June 10th of 2020. So he was paroled like Kim's family was worried he would be. If he's still alive today, he'd be around 87 years old. Frederick Spees was released two weeks after Michael on June 24th of 2020. Today, he'd be about 77 years old. Kimberly K. Jones Wallace will not be forgotten. On the anniversary of her senseless death, her family always posts online about the beloved woman that they lost to tragic circumstances. And those who knew Kim will always be impacted by her grace and her kindness, including our first degree Michelle. If there is one takeaway Michelle had from grieving Kim's loss, it's this. Trust your gut. 
if something doesn't seem right about someone, trust that feeling because it's there for a reason. And that's what I took from that experience. When someone kicks off your warning system like that, there's a reason for it and you, and you need to be be aware. That's what I would say. It taught me at an early age. Life throws stuff at us all the time. If it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not up, it's down. The onslaught of constant decision-making, problem-solving, and crisis-handling is just a lot. We're taking in so much information. And you know what might get drowned out because of that? Our intuition, that small voice inside of us, a gut instinct that can help us, guide us, even direct us away from danger. As humans, our intuition is one of the most valuable tools that we have. And yet sometimes we let it slip right past us, and we shouldn't. We should take advantage of our intuition, lean into it instead of losing track of it. Next time someone gives you a weird vibe, like they say one thing and do another, or they aren't approaching you with respect and kindness, don't feel bad about exiting the situation. Finding a friend, getting someone, anyone's help. Do what makes you feel safest because you never know. Maybe your intuition is catching on to something your conscious brain is not, and that could make all the difference. huge thank you to our first reader michelle for being with us for today's episode if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com follow us on instagram join our facebook group we're talking true crime all the time join our patreon if you're looking for more true crime content and stick around tomorrow because we will have a exclusive episode of one of our best patreon episodes right in your feed and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Court Documents, Find a Grave, The Macon Telegraph, Paulding.com, City of Powder Springs, Seven Springs Museum, and the Georgia Department of Corrections. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.